Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Very pleased to chat with a man whose work I've followed for years with great, great pleasure, Carl Benjamin, popularly known as Sargon of Akkad. That's with two Ks. Just wanted to remind people, the YouTube channel, cross your fingers for now, is youtube.com forward slash Sargon of Akkad 100. Facebook.com, of course, the same, Sargon of Akkad 100. And minds.com forward slash Sargon underbar of underbar Akkad Sargon, thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. And the, the feeling's mutual. I've followed your work for years as well. And, uh, you know, there, there are small differences in ideology that we have and whatnot. But um, generally, I think you've done a fantastic job of opposing the nonsense that's coming out of the progressive left at the moment. And it, just like Paul Joseph Watson, any anyone who's prepared to push back against that, at the end of the day, we're on the same team. Because yeah, I mean, differences differences in conclusions are eventually ironed out by reason and evidence over time. And you have to come to some conclusions in life. And you're always going to have incomplete data. And you're always going to be encounter better arguments the next day. So as long as you're using the same methodology, all science grows towards truth. Uh, but it must start in different places. Otherwise, what the heck is there to discuss? So... So, Sargon, how was your how was your day yesterday? Just just out of curiosity, what uh, what went on? How was your breakfast? Uh, you know, what was what was your morning like? Did you enjoy your coffee? How, how was your day? It was pretty good. I've I've, I've been trying to lose some weight, so I just had uh, eggs on toast. So it was you know pretty low fat. It's it's uh, yeah, it was, it was unremarkable. Otherwise, you know, nothing to speak of. <laughs> no interruptions to say any live broadcasts or anything like that going down. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, it's been quite stressful. Um, and I still don't actually know what's happened. I don't know whether I've been directly targeted by YouTube. I don't know whether this has been um, a kind of malicious use of uh, past things that have happened but haven't been addressed for some reason. Because, I mean, I, I I just don't know. And I think that what this what has happened is uh, three years ago, I got into a, not three years ago, sorry, a year ago, I got into a spat with another YouTuber after I um, crushed him in a debate. And he got a bit angry about uh, me taking a few clips from the debate of, that he had had with another person and hosting them with a descriptive title and description. And so he DMCA'd them. And so I thought, well, I'm not going to be petty about it. I'll just let him go. It was on my secondary channel and it made him look worse if I let him shut the channel down. So I didn't think anything of it. And the closest, the best information I'm working on at the moment is that for some reason, over a year, a year later, YouTube has decided to penalize me because of that. And I'm not even sure why. I didn't, I didn't know that was in terms of conditions. I've had no warning. They've said nothing about it for over a year. And it's come on the heels of what is being, I think, rightly called the YouTube purge, which after all of the outcry, YouTube is starting to walk back. But let's be honest we all know the sort of ideological state of YouTube. We know the kind of things they believe. We know the kind of people running it. We know the environment in which they live. And it's all ridiculous. It's social justice nonsense. And they know that we use the, their platform and they've got every incentive to get rid of us. Well, I do sort of have a mental image uh, of uh, the engineers drowning in the sea tentacles of the HR department, because I think that's the portal through which a lot of this stuff uh, comes. And you know, here's here's the thing, though. See, it, it's so easy. Maybe you, you just pick up the phone and talk to somebody in the organization and get your answers. Do you, do, you, do you need the number? Do you need the contact? But that's the weird thing. For those who aren't content producers, 
it is a black box. It is an opaque, you know, like you 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 put out your tea leaves and your chicken entrails at the base of the Mount Olympus. You withdraw and you hope that someone's going to come down and give you some sign. But for the amount of time, energy, and risk that we put into creating content, controversial content, difficult content, explosive content sometimes, boy, you'd think you could just get a phone call. This <laughs> is someone to call. It, it's amazing. It seems to be no, no matter the size of your channel, it's or it, it literally is like trying to speak to God. It's it's impossible to get hold of someone and actually have just even if it was just a brief email exchange or something. I mean, something that's so simple as that, you know, that you'd think in the 21st century with all the amazing technology we have, they would be able to do it like that. But no, it is exactly as you say, it's completely opaque. And the any information they get, the smallest dregs of information they give you are not very informative. So, I mean, I, I'm not saying that, that I'm necessarily being ideologically targeted because I just don't know. It just happens to have come at exactly the same time as an event that seems to obviously be ideological targeting. So, who knows? Well, see, that's what happens when Trump announces a run for 2020. Is <laughs> I think the flamethrowers come out and everyone dives for the bushes because for you, it was like they really went for the heart of the spider, right? Because it was Ooh. your... A Google login as a whole, and so you couldn't access a whole bunch of stuff. It wasn't just like one channel, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, luckily, I actually, I actually managed to get in contact with one of these trusted flaggers who was actually quite cooperative. Um, but the thing is, and I, I feel bad for these guys because they are in basically the same position as us, as in they can't get hold of people properly either, and they couldn't get any real information. So the, the reason that all I have is a working theory is because he couldn't find out. Hmm. But um, the, he did find out that what I can do is if, if like, you know, if I use my wife's YouTube account, I can set that to be a manager of my YouTube account. And even though I can't log in on my one, I, it, once she's set to a manager, I can get into my one through hers, and then I can continue uploading content. But I don't know how much longer my channel will be around, so... If it goes, it goes. If it doesn't, then great. <laughs> now, what, what's your relationship to that stuff? Because, I mean, we, we both have occasionally uploaded stuff that a few people might have issues with, uh, mostly to do with hairstyles and uh, lack <laughs> of trimming of ear and nose hairs. But oh, yes. how does this work for you in terms of that sort of Damocles hanging by a thread thing? Because there is that temptation. And of course, this is the mind virus in a sense they're trying to implant is back off from the controversies, become bland, fade into the background, become beige. How is it for you in terms of the content that you produce? Is there kind of like a fuse that gets tripped in you? Like, okay, maybe I'll cool it for a bit. Or some people are like, this inflames my self-righteous jetpack to Mach 12 speeds. I mean, where, where does this sit for you? Um, personally, I don't think I've ever really done anything wrong. I think that my high crime is going after their sacred cows mm. because I think that there are severe problems with the the way their social cows are, uh, their sacred cows are, um, I, I guess, constructed is my problem. I find that they're, they're on weak foundations and they lead to very negative and, uh, frankly, oppressive conclusions. And I want to oppose that. But this means that I'm going against a precious orthodoxy that is the sort of thing that gets people labeled as all sorts of names even though those labels aren't necessarily true. At the end of the day, facts are facts, and you have to accept those facts. Um, and But not only that, one, one thing that really annoys me is the the sort of ideological usurpation of terms like liberal. And, you know, they've, they've completely stolen these words. And I'm sorry, I am actually a liberal, like an English liberal. I actually follow the sort of, that, that's my belief system. And so when I see collectivists suggesting that we should racially categorize people, 
it's not very liberal, is it? <laughs> so I, I find myself uh, deeply opposed to it. But honestly, when it comes to uh, sitting under the sword of Damocles, I don't mind. I guess that, I mean, I don't like, I, I, I spent my 20s working in corporate offices and they were, I found it, I, I found it kind of oppressive. I didn't like it. I found it boring. I found it unchallenging. I found the lack of freedom that I had to be uh, more concerning than the insecurity of not knowing what tomorrow brings. I guess there's a kind of person that likes living on that edge and seeing what happens the next day. And it turns out I'm one of those people. So I'm, I'm actually not too bad with it, but um, I'm not going to lie. It is, it is concerning given the, the spotlight that's currently on, I guess the alternative media at the moment. So, uh, well, it's kind of a, it's a little bit of a, a one way street too. When you leave the mainstream world, so to speak, and you go into speaking truth to power on the internet, uh, it's like, well, I, I could have, I could have sworn this this door opened both ways, but there's no real way back. So you kind of have to go forward, in a way, you know, because let's say you try and get some job back in the corporate world, and you know, people Google you, and then it's like, oh, well, he said this, he said that. So, um, yeah. it's sort of like, you know, smokers they go up on the roof and then they can't get back into the building, you know, after they have their smoke, and that does give you a kind of commitment, knowing that uh, it's kind of this or bust. And that gives you some vulnerability, but I think it also gives you some core strength as well. Yeah, I agree. And it it it, it gives you the motivation to carry on when you're feeling like you don't want to carry on. But um, I, I was thinking about this a while ago, and I think that eventually, because the internet is going to be essentially forever, and everyone is using it all the time, I think eventually we will come to a point where this kind of, um, I guess I'll call it like bourgeois moral policing, the kind of the sort of progressive tone policing of, oh, you said something naughty five years ago. I think eventually there will be so many people who have fallen foul of this that it will just lose its power. And I think the same thing's happening with, say, uh, unfounded allegations of sexual assault, a la the Me Too movement. Mm. Um, I've noticed that they're still coming out. There are still allegations being made. But now a denial on social media is just enough to get people to ignore it because the power and the weight of it has been completely wasted because it's obviously being used as a weapon. If it wasn't so obvious that people were, I mean, anyone who takes to Twitter to make a sexual assault allegation is, in my opinion, lying. You make an allegation like that to the police. That's what they're for. If you want to be taken seriously, you go to the authorities. Even if you don't have evidence, you say, look, it happened five years ago. I can't prove it, but I want it on record. You don't go to Twitter because that's a character attack. That's an attempt to smear someone's reputation. And that's the only way I would take them seriously. So, but yeah, I, th I think eventually we're going to come to a point where honestly, this has just run its course and there are just too many people. Or influence and can't wait till that day comes because then we can have proper conversations again. Well, I do think that when you go out on a limb with recent arguments and evidence that is not part of the general culture, then what happens is there is this shock, right? So the, so the left keeps yeah. facts and, and data at bay so that when it breaks through the matrix, people are like shocked and appalled and it's terrible. And they've got the pre-assembled labels of, of sticky goo to throw at your reputation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, life and, and science and, and reason, they have a funny way of marching forward and dragging even the most unwilling. You know, I, of course, you can go back to the... Uh, 
you know, the Copernican revolution, you know, like the, yeah. the earth is not the center of the solar system, ah, heretic, burned alive. <laughs> and then it's like, over time, you know, it, it just, reason has a way of unfolding, as long as we still get to talk about things. Once the censorship comes yes. in, then it all kind of falls apart. But as long as we have the capacity to engage in the public square with reason and evidence, what seems crazy now, like the first guy to come up with, maybe let's end slavery, that was insane. All human societies, all throughout time, all across the world. Who's going to pick the cotton? You want the poor to starve? It's going to raise the price of their food. Who's, we'll have nothing to wear. Like, it was insane. And now we just kind of yeah. take it for granted in hindsight. So truth is kind of like that ambulance whine, you know, like that goes past and then it's like completely obvious behind you. As long as we still get to talk, I think what seems nutty and, and shocking and maybe even morally appalling in hindsight then becomes like, well, what was the big deal about all of that? It's kind of obvious. And if we can hold on till then, I think that's a good thing. T totally agree. I mean, like the, the problem that the people who wish to deny reality, and I'm not just talking about the left when I say that, there are lots of people like that. And anyone who's in a position where they wish to make reality fit, fit their ideological conceptions rather than actually molding their ideological conceptions to reality is ultimately fighting a losing battle because at the end of the day, you can say anything you like and even if you can prevent people from talking, reality will catch up to you. It's, there's no getting around it. If, if something is real, it's real and you just have to deal with that. I wonder too about this. It's, it's the sort of Frodo question, I guess, which is, if someone gave you, like if you were standing over this big giant pipeline of information and arguments and data flowing across the internet, I can really, really understand. I, I like to think I would not take that ring and put it on, but I can really understand the idea of like, well, some of this stuff is really bad and really wrong. I'm just going to... I'm just going to tweak it a little bit. Like just some of the more outlandish stuff. You know, the Nazis. Okay, well, of course, right? The Nazis. And then, of course, everyone becomes a Nazi after that particular breach is, is made. But standing on, like for, for the, the big tech companies, standing on the data with the capacity to move what they consider small levers to keep crazy people out of the conversation, to keep society civilized and to, to keep things moving forward. By God, that is a tempting power. And, um, you know, power does corrupt and it seems... It's funny because the phone company never fell prey to that. They weren't like, oh, you're a libertarian, you can't have a phone number. And, and the, you know, the mail wasn't like, oh, you're mailing out a, a libertarian package or a classical liberty. You can't, we're not going to deliver that. But there's this funny kind of power now that once you cross that Rubicon and you start to say, we're now going to mess with the content, I do not know where that ends. But uh, I think it ends either in tyranny or alternative platforms rising to the fore. Well, it, I think it ends with both. It definitely it, it'll it'll go straight to tyranny, and mm. then it ends up forcing alternative platforms to form against that will be competitors against platforms like YouTube, who have inadvertently encouraged their own demise because of their own tyrannical nature. If I mean, the, the, and this is not a new problem. I mean, this is this has been argued about for for centuries. I mean, this is what on liberty is almost all about. When John Stuart Mill's time, he he was making exactly the same argument, saying, "Look, people shouldn't lose their their jobs and their source of income just because they have a dissenting opinion. In fact, the the one man with a dissenting opinion should be protected the most." Because you don't need to protect opinions that aren't dissenting. You don't need to protect their free speech because no one's going to come after them and trying to shut them down. But um. Uh, you know what I find interesting about the whole um, persecuting people for opinions, uh, which, I mean, I mean, when you just say it, it sounds ridiculous in and of itself. But I always find that it's weird because the argument is 
not just a slippery slope. I mean, if you're going to justify going after someone's job, why can you justify them having a bank account? Mm. How do you even, you know, why should a bank give a Nazi a bank account or a loan or something like that? And at that point, you realize that you're going to undo the person's entire life just because you disagree with that person's opinion. And when I say Nazi, I'm being generous. You know, they they will do this to anyone who opposes what they're doing. And it's it's really scary because ultimately there is no good argument. If you're going to deplatform them from one thing, why shouldn't you deplatform from the other? And the answer is you should. And that's terrifying precedent, in my opinion. And it's a weird kind of arrogance. I, yeah. it's it's the sort of to me it's the, it's the question of central planning in economics, mm. which is oh I know how many faggots of wood should be delivered to Siberia this winter. Uh, by the way, that's not a rude word. That just means a bundle of wood. Uh, and and how you know how many widgets should be should be produced in in <clears throat> Vladivostok next? Like there's no human being who can possibly come up with all of that stuff. Who can possibly know. Uh, without price, where the allocation of resources should be. I feel a similar hesitancy and and humility, I suppose, when it comes to billions of people all in hot pursuit of the truth and of their own advantage. There's no possible way to say uh, that uh, this belief is necessarily bad. Even beliefs which I hugely, hugely disagree with should be out there so we can strengthen our muscles to oppose them. Because if there, if there isn't horrible beliefs out there and people advocating for them, don't we get lazy? Don't we end up just debating things that aren't consequential? And also we can't map what's going on. It doesn't get rid of the beliefs, just drives them underground. We can't map them. They're not erupting. They're not public. You can't oppose them. You can't expose them. And you can't show their flaws, which helps inoculate future generations from those bad ideas and provides a very good object lesson in objective argumentation. And that failure to be humble in the face of the collective human pursuit of truth is to me absolutely appalling. Maybe it comes right of this Dunning-Kruger effect that people who aren't that smart don't know uh, what smartness looks like and certainly don't know that they're not that smart. But I just can't imagine pushing or pulling these levers and think I'm doing anything other than wrecking a very complicated social engine. Well, the, 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 you've made a really great point there, in fact, because the, we are generally ruled over by Platonists, people who think that they can engineer the perfect society. And I mean, to me, that is that is the complete opposite of what I think is even possible, let alone desirable. You know, I think that we should leave people to their own devices and give them the tools they need to be good human beings, to have good critical faculties, to have self-esteem, to have good motivation and to think, right, I might to empower them, I think is the right term. I And this is one of the reasons I hate victim culture so much when they mm. say, oh, are you the victim of racism? Are you the victim? No, I'm not the victim of anything. I will be fine. Leave people alone and let them make their own lives and they'll make the world around them good. This is why I think this is why Jordan Peterson resonates with so many people. Clean your room, tidy up around you. And then what well, I mean, just it's so simple and it's so silly, but you've directly improved the space around you. You've made yourself feel like you can achieve something and you've got an obstacle out of your path. Suddenly, okay, well, what's next? What else can you do? And there's lots you can do. But instead, you've got a bunch of I, I yeah, I guess managerial types who are just sat there thinking, right, if I tweak things just right, then I then we can create all of this and make it a perfect world. And I think that this is the problem with intersectionality, in fact. This they've developed a theory of how they can do this along the lines of race and gender and and it's I it's doomed to fail. I mean there's so much hubris involved with all of this that it's it honestly it's it's gonna end in tears. Well hopefully that's the only spilt liquid. Um, <laughs> and yeah. the purity test. 
I think is very interesting, the purity test. Of course, the Nazis had their purity test to do yeah. with your Aryanness or your Germanness or whatever. And the communists had their purity test regarding your relationship to the means of production. Were you a kulak? Were you a bourgeois? Were you a, a capitalist? They had their purity tests. And to me, uh, purity tests are like how you pull back the bow in order to launch it at someone's throat. And to me, when you have these kinds of purity tests, and let's not kid ourselves, the left have these insane purity oh. tests that they <laughs> themselves regularly fail. And oh, yeah. when you have this purity test, it is uh, loading. It is loading weaponry. Uh, you have this purity test in order to discharge venom and hatred and violence and, and the mass murders that have gone on under these purity tests. Mao had them, of course, uh, in communism as well. Are you pure enough for the party? And these purity tests, to me, is a way of avoiding the engagement in the rather messy messy business of finding the truth. It is not a pretty business. It is, you know, like like the old statement Bismarck had about sausages and laws. These are things you do not want to see being yeah. uh, uh, being made. And it's the same thing with truth. Truth is messy. It's complicated. There's counter data. There's arguments you never thought of. There are counterfactuals that, that bring you up short. And the purity test as a substitute for rational debate, man, that is an explosive mix to bring to any society. Yeah, I, I'm... I've, I'm very much against purity testing. I mean, my personal motto is, is it good enough? Because I think, <laughs> no, and that's honestly, because, I mean, it's it's an old axiom, but the, the perfect is the enemy of the good. That You will ruin something that is perfectly adequate and something you can be proud of and say, look, I've done something that's good and I'm happy with it and this is, uh, you know, good enough. And then, but if you take that extra step and say, well, maybe I can, and you start tweaking it and you try to make it better. And suddenly you've ruined the thing that was good by trying to make it perfect. And this, this is honestly, I think the product of utopian thinking to ever think you can achieve the, and again, I, I think it comes down to the kind of Platonist mindset mm. where you think, right, okay, well, I can, I can just, I can do this. And it's like, no, you can't. This is why you really need to set yourself to be how good could it be realistically? Remember that you are just a mortal man. You are flawed like everyone else. Just be as good as you can be. Don't try and think you're going to make it perfect. And then suddenly you notice that purity testing just falls away. You know, no one has, okay, you know, did they, did they, is there any harm done? If there's no harm done, don't worry about it. You know, if there's no harm done, it's not that bad. Don't get yourself in a, in a twist about it. It's nothing to really worry about. But the, the thing I've noticed about purity testing is that really they're a form of character assassination to advance the person who's attacking's social status. That's all it is. Mm. They, they're not, they're not trying to find truth. They're not trying to use reason. What they're trying to do is drag someone else down in the perception of other people around them. And by doing so, obviously enhance themselves that, that to me, it's, it's a kind of, it's a kind of malevolence and I, I really don't like it. Yeah. I just love that phrase you had in the middle. No, you can't. That's almost like that's the motto for me of classical liberalism, of small state, of, of freedom. No, you can't. Maybe we can get rid of poverty. No, you can't. Maybe we'll have no sick people or nobody will ever be. No, you can't. Maybe we'll have no unhappy people. Maybe the children will never stub their toes. Maybe it will never rain on anyone. No, you can't. You can't have it. You have to accept that life is going to be messy and imperfect. And this purity test, to me, has a lot to do with the world imposing itself and causing people to feel, I think, what is for them unbearable levels of stress and anxiety. Uh, you know, when they come across factuals that go against their ideology, that causes them extraordinary amounts of stress. Some people... Their ideology, it becomes their personality and facts kind of drive them out of themselves like some sort of exorcism, but of, their, of what they think of as their ego. And yeah. they fight back against it like, like cornered animals. And it is an old truism, I think, 
that if you can't control your own emotions, you will inevitably end up controlling other people. Because if other people have the capacity to hit that red button on your forehead and cause you a sleepless night and stress, then you end, if you can't manage that yourself, you end up having to stop other people from hitting that raw nerve that's kind of floating above you like the tendrils of a sea anemone, like you are a raw human being. And that leads, again, this lack of self-management, lack of self-knowledge, lack of self-forgiveness almost leads, I think, to that tyrannical impulse as well. You are absolutely correct there. I mean, this there is so much there that is easily demonstrable using examples from social justice. For example, I mean, that's what political correctness is. That's what things like microaggressions are. They're the demand that you control other people's behavior for your feelings. And that's an insane mandate that you're giving yourself because that means that literally everyone around you has to be under your power in some way or another, or else you know you can't actually control other people. And that puts you in a state of natural insecurity. You don't know what they're going to say. They might say the N-word. They might say whatever it is you know that you personally find offensive or harmful. And because you never learned to manage it, because you never took personal responsibility for how you feel and deal with the way that you feel rather than exp- um, projecting it onto other people, now you do become totalitarian because now you have to prevent them from acting in ways that you don't want to see acted on. And you, you have to police everyone else's behavior. And so suddenly you get trapped in a kind of unhealthy cult mentality that is it it never ends and it can only end in a spiral into a collapse. And that's it's really deeply unhealthy. And and at the end of the day, can you honestly tell people that you're happy in a position like that? (laughs) Well, you're so vulnerable. Yeah, you're so vulnerable. You know, self-ownership and self-possession means not being any way the wind blows with whatever is going on, the verbal gales of dispute or whatever is going on. It means not being so vulnerable. And if you're not that vulnerable to negative opinions, and I'm going to ask you about that, of course, because mm. um, like myself, you've been described as in, in various negative uh, categories. And for a lot yeah. of people, it's kind of incomprehensible that not only do we say, yeah, fine, but we can argue against it, we can continue to flourish. And I actually do guide myself by negative opinions to some degree. Uh, it's sort of not quite as reactionary as the the pinball bouncing around, but it is important to know where you're running into resistance, because that's sometimes where you need to go to to get the most fruitful discussions. But how is that for you when the negative labels are attached, when the ostracism is attached, when the source of income is attached, the reputation is attacked. Uh, was that a surprise when it sort of first emerged? Or how did you roll with it? And what do you do about it now? When I was first called a misogynist because I was criticizing feminism, I was mm. outraged. I was genuinely outraged because, I mean, at the time I must have like 5,000 Give me a British how dare you. The, nobody does how dare you like the British. How dare you, sir? Oh! Um, I'm just going to faint and re- recover myself, but See, go on. Ser- seriously, though, yeah. When when it first happened, I I was just thunderstruck. I couldn't believe someone was telling me that I hated women because, I mean, obviously, I know I don't hate women, and I just had problems for, in an ideological way with what feminism was doing because it was portraying men as the oppressors of women, and I don't think that they are. So I was addressing feminism on its own terms, and they were like, "No, you just hate women." It's like. I was just shocked. But I think that I've been doing this for enough years now that I it, it doesn't personally bother me, but the amount of gray on my chin now, um, <laughs> like if you, it, I've got a picture of myself from uh, two, two years ago, my son's christening, and my beard was just jet black. And so I was like, right, okay. Obviously, there is stress here that I'm, I'm maybe uh, containing somehow. But um, yeah, it, it, nowadays, I expect it, though, because at this point, I see that I see um, the organized forces of the far left as being more like um, an ideological block 
that's operating in ways that are deliberately vindictive and malevolent and actually trying to gain power over other people when it's not justified. And so this seems like an attack on, well, traditional Western liberal values, frankly. And so now when they, when they give, you know, attempt to give me some sort of character attack, a a label, a smear, whatever, I expect it. That's exactly the only weapon that they have. And after I, I read a few years ago, um, Rousseau's discourse on inequality, and I found it very interesting. Because on the, I think it's the second to last page, he describes um, the the sort of tapestry of morality of the bourgeoisie, and I realised that all of this was because I had bought into that sort of. Uh, mindset as well uh the way he described it is you live in the estimation of other people mm. and he described that as being the modern bourgeois man or woman obviously and he was comparing that to the savage the the you know, uncivilized peoples of the the time and he was saying that these people live within themselves they don't virtue signal they don't care about the opinions of other people they care about their own opinions how do you feel about yourself and i was thinking wow that's a really interesting way of looking at things because I think a lot of people do live in the estimation of other people. And I I don't think that they realize that they do. And it's so much more empowering when you realize that, hang on, whose opinion really matters to me? And ultimately it's either the, it's obviously the people I care about and the people I love, but they obviously love me back. And so they're not trying to hurt me. And so really it's my own estimation. I'm the one who judges whether I've done right or wrong. And if I don't think I've done anything wrong, then God damn it. I'm going to say, look, I can tell you why I have done nothing wrong. But conversely, if I think I have done something wrong, then I will be the first to admit it. I'll be the judge of me. And, uh, it's, it's a far more empowering way of dealing with it. And so it, I guess it's kind of like, uh, you know, in the last scene of the matrix where he's, he's knocking the hand away, uh, and with one arm behind his back and he's, you know, the agent Smith can't touch him. Suddenly I'm just like, we, none, none of the things that you're saying actually hurt me at all because I know you don't know me. I know you don't know my intentions. I know you don't know why I say what I say, but I do. And so anything you say can only be a character attack when you approach me like that. So yeah, I, I've, I guess I've kind of grown inured to it at this point. And it's a funny thing too, because a lot of times people would get that kind of strength of homesteading or internalizing their own conscience. And we are responsible to our own conscience, but if our conscience is then manipulable by other people, we become their slaves because then they have the button of self-attack and so on. So when you internalize your own conscience relative to, we hope, objective and universal values, a lot of times, uh, certainly I was raised as a Christian, and a lot of times when I was younger, the statement would be, you know, I answer to God, not to you. Mm. I answer to the Ten Commandments, not to you. Yeah. And I think, how did you, because as an atheist, how do you find that strength relative to values when you can't personify the values in the form of a, a deity? Uh, I've never felt the need to. I mean, I my my parents are atheists. We've I've I've never in any way been even vaguely religious or spiritual. I've never needed to. Um, I, I guess I'm incredibly Aristotelian. I think that <laughs> what you're doing is makes you what you are. And so if you're doing right, then no matter what they say about you, uh, it, it 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 they can't take that away from you. They can't undo your righteous action regardless of how they want to frame it, regardless of what they want to call you or anything like that. And so I've, I've never needed to have that about me. I, I, I guess maybe I'm lucky in that way. Maybe I'm unlucky in that way. I'm not sure. But I've never, I've never felt a need for a deity. It's weird. I, 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 I genuinely, like prayer is one thing that I don't understand. And the thing is, 
I, I know that scientifically there are physical benefits to praying. Like meditation, you know, it clears your mind, it relaxes you, it reduces your heart rate, it de-stresses you. I can understand the physical benefits. But I remember as a child, see, you know, you look, you know, in Church of England schools and whatnot, and that okay, please pray. And I was just sat there going, right, what am I doing? What do I need to do? You know, what am I? Because I've just been completely irreligious my whole life. And the, the worst part is, though, it actually makes me terrible against, about arguing against religion because I, ne I was never like inside religion and I never had those sort of feelings. So I don't really know how to connect with people who are religious in that way. And if you want to try and persuade someone of anything, you have to do it on their own terms. So I'm actually I am the worst atheist when it comes to being an anti-theist that you'll ever meet. <laughs> Well, I'll give you a framework, which I actually written about in a book called Against the Gods, which I found to be quite helpful in understanding this. Because as you point out, prayer does give people measurable benefits and they do it. And they're not all just sitting there thinking it's kind of cold in here, my knees hurt, right? There is something that is actively occurring for people. Yeah. And I think if we understand that the concept of God translates into the concept of the subconscious, then I think we are a lot closer to understanding the religious experience. Um, the subconscious is is an incredible mechanism of speed. It's been clocked sometimes at 8,000 times faster than the conscious mind uh, in terms of reasoning out. And even people who aren't good at math can do these probability distribution of resources stuff, like who pays for what in the pub and so on. And uh, also, we have this idea that humanity was birthed out of a god, uh, that we are sort of a late addition to an eternal consciousness. And uh, if we look at our, our ego, the neofrontal cortex, that was birthed out of successive layers of the brain. I've referred to it, the humanity side is like our post-monkey beta expansion pack. And yeah. so I think if we look at how much um, depth and, and complexity and, in a sense, answers there are in the unconscious, and we say, okay, well, when people are praying, what are they doing? Well, I don't believe that they're praying to an external deity that exists outside of consciousness, but they're kind of dropping questions into a deeper self, which has preceded mm. our ego by, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, and that there is a lot of wisdom uh, in the uh, unconscious. It's, it's faster, and I think that's one of the reasons why it seems so vivid to people. And certainly when I was going through talk therapy, um, my engagement with my unconscious was very powerful and very rapid and very stimulating. And there was a, a lot going on. Plus, of course, we have the second brain in our gut. You know, we think our brain is just in this sort of skull prison. It's all over our body. And so I think that that's one way of understanding the, the crossover between uh, atheists with independent conscience uh, and mm -hmm. people who find value. Uh, in prayer, it is a form of introspection or connection with something that is deeper and more eternal in a way than our mere conscious mind, though, of course, the conscious mind has extraordinary strengths uh, in and of itself. Well, they're for different horses for different courses, aren't they? I mean, yeah. um, well, I, I recently read The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, and fantastic book. If anyone watching hasn't read it, you should definitely read it, because it will tell you more about yourself than you think, or, or maybe even want to know. But it's something you should know. And uh, he, he likens um, our decision-making process to an elephant and a rider, and the rider is the conscious, rational brain. Hmm. The elephant is your gut feeling. It's your passions. It's, it's the thing that, like you were saying, reacts just like that. And often the rider is acting as the lawyer for the elephant. So the elephant will do something. And then afterwards, you have to have a post hoc rationalization for why you did that thing. Even though the thing that you did might be exactly the right thing to do. And when I say exactly the right thing to do, I might mean in a in a way of sort of self-protection, maybe something like that. It might not necessarily mean be the most moral thing to do. But um, 
either way like you th- there is a connection between them and this i mean uh, you know there are he goes out of his way to make sure that you don't come away with the impression that this means you have no control over your initial impressions or anything like that. Cause you do. Um, but, the, and you, you absolutely can persuade people of things, even, even if they're quite opposed to you, you, you basically have to kind of calm them down and make, make their elephant feel secure before you address them on from the rational to the rational. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, but yeah, I, I think, um, I think that I think your your evaluation of prayer there is very interesting. I think you know having like and I, I imagine that this is something that meditation's about as well. Clearing the mind and getting in touch with the sort of subconsciousness in your own brain is, I mean, it's probably something there. I've I've never looked into it, but I can I can definitely see that there would be a, a genuine physiological reason that people would do it. You know, otherwise they wouldn't do it. Otherwise, it wouldn't have persisted for this whole time. It would be a unique cultural thing to one group of people, but it's not. It's universal. All human cultures have had some form of prayer, so it must have some physiological benefit, in my opinion. So let's get into labels a little bit. Oh, oh, mm. boy! If you ever, ever really want to um, understand the media, do something that the media writes about that it doesn't approve of, and boy, you'll get a <laughs> sense of just how objective the media can be. Because there's this whole new thing about you know, like. Uh, you hate Nazis. Yeah, I hate Nazis. You want to punch a Nazi? Well, no, not really. I think that's kind of wrong. But you do hate them, right? Okay, yeah, I hate Nazis. Do you think they should be deplatformed? I don't know. I don't like Nazis. And it's like, the moment they can get you to say, I hate Nazis and they can be deplatformed, it's like, boom, now you're a Nazi and you can be, because the labels are very, very shaky. You know, Nazism used to respond, used to refer to a very <clears> specific <throat> flavor of national socialism. Of course, they had oh, to yeah. get rid of the socialism word. They had to, the, uh, national socialism that arose in the 20s and 30s in, in Germany, which had very specific uh, racial and sometimes Germanic elements. And now they don't like calling people Nazism or Nazis because unless they're, you know, got the swastika because, you know, they get sued and stuff like that. So they've invented these synonyms, alt-right, far-right. And because everybody knows, you know, oh, the dog whistle, the left is always talking about their dog whistles. Well, that's just a dog whistle. You know, when they say far-right, they're not talking classical liberal. They're not talking anarcho-capitalist. They're not talking about Rothbardians minarchist or anything like that. They are really trying to get you out on an extreme to the point where you become dehumanized. And I just wish, I wish, and you've probably seen this in articles written about you too, I wish that they would say, here's this methodology and here are some of its arguments. Come to your own conclusions. Well, if they did that, then it wouldn't be much of a hit piece, would it? (laughs) (laughs) The the idea, I mean, like I've I've had dozens and do- like like you, you know, we we've both had dozens and dozens and dozens of articles written about us. I mean, I remember when you interviewed Demore after the memo broke, and that that was a seismic moment to demonstrate that look, Demore didn't go to the press first; he went to you. That meant something. And yeah, Jordan they- Peterson actually first, and then me. But yeah, no, oh, he sorry, didn't yeah, go to mainstream at all. No, no, yeah, sorry, I thought you yeah. went to you first, but yeah, but that that's seismic. You know, it, it's it, it was a definitive line in the culture war because no one, not one of these articles that is, you know, against Paul Joseph Walton, against any, any of us has ever addressed one of our arguments. I've read dozens of them and I've never seen them say, he said this, and this is why this is wrong. I've never seen it. Or he just said this, you know, they could just report and let the readers think for themselves but it's always some wild out of context quote that it's the worst conceivable thing that they could comb through and find with no like i just 
this is fear of the audience potentially thinking for themselves or being exposed to, I just, I want to see data without an opinion. I, I want to see a picture without a review. I want to see the movie without the subtitles of, of opinion. I just, just give me the data. Please let me think for myself. But they just, it's like they can't possibly do it. They can't present you or I or other people without these labels designed to alienate and dehumanize us and without a characterization of our arguments rather than the arguments themselves. Uh, and that is Absolutely. just astounding. And that, to me, is the real matrix they're weaving around people's uh, brains and their futures. Oh, they, they absolutely are. I mean, people, when, when I mean, like the, it's amazing because I come from the left, you know, that I, growing up, I mean, when I was in my 20s, I read Capital and maybe I was a bit socialist-y, but it, coming into my 30s after having 10 years experience in the workforce, my socialism had dropped away and I realized that I was a liberal, you know, I, I was an English liberal of the sort of classical British tradition. And, but I mean, you know, I, I could, I could compromise on some things, you know, for example, I'm British, maybe it's just a cultural thing, but I don't mind the NHS and I don't want to get into it. Um, but it, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, that that's fine. But one of the things that you notice after being in sort of left wing circles for a while is just the term right wing it's not a description. It's just a mechanism for otherization. That's mm. all it is. That's all they use it for. It's not a description of your politics at all. It's just to say he's not one of us. And it's like, okay, that's fine. And like the the whole the whole thing with just the ridiculousness of the political compass and spectrum. Anyway, I find mm. it. I, I I I've started reading uh, some objectivist philosophers actually, and they don't do that. They consider themselves above it because they analyze ideologies along the lines of principles. And I'm not an objectivist because I I don't necessarily agree that um, uh, well, just certain premises that they have. But that's not to say they're just wrong. Just a sec. I'm just going to make a quick note yep. here. Debate no to be resumed at some point. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 it's not even a debate I want to have. I'm I'm actually talking to uh, Yaron Brook. Um, mm. Uh, in in two three days time about yeah this. he's the head of the Ayn Rand Institute right? he is yeah. yeah and and I I kind of want to just investigate with him what he believes you know because they were like oh do you want to have a debate with him so like, well a I don't think I'm on his level for a start but um but b I'm I'm more curious than anything you know I, I would like to just have it as another uh, more information another sort of ideological lens that I can attach when I want it you know. Um, but one of the things I do like about the way the objectivists analyze things is they, they analyze things through the lens of principles. And so they drill down to first principles and then they, they, they see where these things actually, and I hate to use the word intersect, but <laughs> it's, it does have a valid use sometimes I've promised. Um, and it's very useful. And suddenly you realize how meaningless the political compass is. It's suddenly you realize it's just for tribalism. And at the end of the day, the best you can get out of it is policy positions. You know, you can say, right. Universal healthcare is, uh, say, a, a left-wing position. Okay, you know, um, free markets are a right-wing position. And I'm just like, well, okay. But that's, again, it, it just boils down to tribalism. And it's not in any way conducive to political discourse. And the problem that we're having at the moment, I think, that's being massively exacerbated by social media is the tribal bubbles that people mm. find themselves falling into just naturally. Like, there are going to be people... Um, who despise the fact that we've had conversations because they'll consider themselves to be in a particular bubble and you in another bubble and never the twain should meet. And that's just them acting like they're in a cave and there's someone else in the other cave that they need to throw a rock at. You know, I love the fact that I can have a dialogue with literally anyone and I'm sorry if anyone's offended by that. I'm, I'm genuinely sorry, but 
I like talking to people I disagree with. I think that's where the most value comes in. And I think it's like long form conversations like this, where there's real meat in the conversation and we can actually get to the bottom of, you know, and, and just genuinely analyze things. I think that's the reason that we're doing so much better than the mainstream media would like us to do. Cause you never see these sort of things on TV anymore. It's all small sound bites. <laughs> oh, it drives me nuts. It, oh yeah, man, it drives me nuts. It's like, you have 45 seconds to make a <laughs> complex point. It's like, you know, it's like, sorry, Socrates, we need to pause for station identification at this point. And so you can't figure, you can't finish your conversation with Antig. Like, you, you just, uh, Alcibiades, sorry, you got to put, like, our capacity to concentrate, our capacity to follow through. And it's interesting because social media is considered to fragment that a lot, but I consider it far less fragmentary in that it leads people to conversations like this than something like the mainstream media where they're just skating on the surface and, and jumping in. And of course, it, it lends itself so much to sophistry and manipulation unless you have long-form dialogues. The alternative media through things like Facebook and, and YouTube, I think, has helped people to actually maintain their concentration in a way the mainstream media can't sustain. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, like um, after Jordan Peterson had his debate with Kathy Newman, there was there was so much in what Newman had said that Peterson, obviously in the heat of the debate, couldn't get out. Um, but I, I had to pick through. I mean, that video was over an hour long and it's had like 900,000 views. The idea that people won't watch long form content is nonsense. It just has to be decent content. It has to be worthwhile. You have to have a point there that you're trying to show people and give them information and ideas they didn't previously have. I mean, my videos are really long normally. And yet, you know, a lot of people seem to like them. And it's because I, I think there's, if like for any content creators or aspiring content creators, um, the, the key maxim that you just have to bear in your mind at the beginning and end of everything you do is don't waste people's time. <laughs> it doesn't matter how long you go on for, just don't waste their time. That's it. Actually, if I heard the story of a kid going up the stairs from a content creator's living room and saying, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe because she thought that meant goodbye and good night. But um, <laughs> now, let's, so I was really curious about that, that tipping point or that turning point you had. Uh, I was also a socialist when I was younger. The tipping point, do you remember it clearly? Was it kind of a subtle, or was it like, you know, lightning strike uh, uh, that, that hit your brain and your spine? Do you remember that turning point uh, in particular? Uh, not not off the top of my head, but we're, it was about 18, 19 years ago now. So um, I, I, remember, I remember coming away from Capital thinking, it's an interesting method of analysis, but I didn't find it complete. And I didn't think that the proposed solutions were going to work, which obviously we know they don't. Um, there wasn't any one particular thing, but honestly, I think that dealing with socialists put me off socialism. <laughs> well, that was Jordan Peterson's experience too. Yeah, exactly. They, I, he's right. They just hate the rich. They just hate the rich. And it annoys the hell out of me because I don't hate the rich. You know, I mean, okay, maybe if someone plundered an, you know, a town or something and, and killed it, yeah, I mean, maybe I'd hate that person. Couple of, if, couple of Saudi princes, I think we can look on the shady side. Exactly right. But I mean, I don't look at Bill Gates and think that he's an immoral person. I mean, I, I actually agree with the objectivists when they say, well, isn't he a good person? It's like, well, yeah, he's made my life infinitely richer by giving me a, a, an operating system that gives me easy access to almost all of the information I want. I can do anything I want. I play video games. I can watch movies. He's made my life better. And what did he, what did he do? He charged me for his work. Okay, I paid happily. You know, there's there's nothing immoral about this. This and and another thing as well, just the constant assaults on capitalism are driving me nuts. Because uh, I'm I'm currently reading Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker, and if you guys aren't sure about capitalism, read that book. It is 
it is just a wallop. It to totally anyone. stole their thunder just real briefly because yeah. the reduction in world poverty over the last 50 years as the result of free trade and free markets has dwarfed anything that the socialist has ever been able to achieve. The socialists have this program called take money from the rich and give it to the poor, take money from the yeah. able and give it to the less able or however you want to phrase it. And that has generally driven entire societies, if not civilizations, into penury. Uh, but the idea of open up free markets, open up trade, and how much, like in, in China and India alone, in India, 50,000 people a month are moving into the middle class. It has been the biggest single reduction of poverty even since the 1990s, just a couple of decades. In all history. And this should in never have history. happened under capitalism and it should have flourished under socialism. And now that the empirical evidence is going against everything they stand for, everything they claim they wanted, we actually find out how much they really wanted it. Because if they say, well, we want the poor to become wealthier, if that's the real goal, they should be saying, I'm setting fire to capital and I'm going to praise Adam Smith. But they don't do that. So I really question whether they do really want to help the poor or using the poor as guilt clubs to beat down and take power over others it's got to be that because they, they i mean you, you would have to be a madman to suggest socialism to try and get people out of poverty i mean where has that ever happened mm. what i mean we have a live action experiment well i wouldn't say experiment but curse in venezuela right now i, I recently did again like a 40 minute video uh but you know which hundreds of thousands of people watched just going through the events of 2017 and watching the socialist government of venezuela implements socialism in Venezuela, and it's just crushing the country. The country with the biggest oil reserves in the it, world. There should be no insane. reason. It's insane. I mean, if 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 Chile had been Venezuela, they Venezuela would be unbelievably rich right now. You know, it it it's incredible how much free markets, and it's all about freedom. It's all about allowing people to actually live their own lives and actually make the decisions that they want to make without the kind of guiding hand of the totalitarian Platonists. Sorry, my son's just woke up. I don't know whether you can hear him in the background. No, it's fine. Um, and let me know uh, if, if you need to, you know, go. But And I tell you, just at an emotional I, level, Carl, I, I have a really tough time with Venezuela. I mean, so I have this Old Testament, New Testament side. I mean, I think mm -hmm. a lot of people do. But for me, it's like, well, you voted for it. And we told you it was going to be bad for decades and decades. Atlas Shrugged was published in 1957. You knew you were told by the Austrian economists, by the free market economists. You were told. People warned you. There are people in your own society speaking the language. Yeah, you, you had the example of the Soviet Union. You had the example of China, of Cambodia. You had the soft socialism of India. You had every conceivable reason, example, fact, data, piece of evidence. And still, you went Chevista. Still, you went you you had Argentina, you had, you had, oh, it just drives me crazy, Pinochet. And, and so part of me is like, well, take what you want and pay for it. There are consequences to your decisions. Then I'm part of me like, oh, but the children. And it's like, but the children didn't vote for it there. And it's like, but my conclusion is, I don't, I'm going to sound cold hearted because it really, the whole thing, you see them running through the sewers hunting like rats and, and seagulls and, and rummaging in the garbage with the dogs to try and get some food. They've lost like 25 pounds a head. But I can't care for people's children more than they do themselves. And if this is the consequence, ah, uh, I wish it had been different. It's the old thing, like you tell someone, to don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke. You don't celebrate when they get sick, but you sure wish they'd listen when they weren't sick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's really nothing you can do. And the thing is, like, nothing has killed people in greater numbers than socialism. Mm. You know, they, they want to, I mean, they demonize Nazism, and rightfully so, but there is just, you know, Nazism doesn't hold a candle 
to the Marxists, it just doesn't, it never got close. You know, just un, untold piles of bodies. All Sorry throughout. to interrupt, but then the Marxists say, yeah, but but Nazism wasn't around as long. And I got to tell you, if that's your argument, you are not in a good place, you know? Well, this serial killer didn't live as long as my serial killer, so of course his death count's going to be higher. It's like, if you're defending that death count by saying that Nazism was a piker, you are not in a good moral place, my friend. Yeah, you, you've lost the argument at that point. And that's you just admitting you've lost the argument. And, and again, like capitalism, you, you can look at any metric, anything. Look at child mortality, life expectation, poverty, health, uh, just, just anything. Just choose something. And you will see that over time, the graph has just gone like this with bad things and like this with good things. And that's all to do with capitalism. So at the end of the day, when Stephen Pink says, look, capitalism, the enlightenment is what we're saying, is actually fixing the world and making it a habitable, humane place that people can enjoy and live long and prosper in. He's right. You know, we have the winning argument here and they have the losing argument and they can just get used to it. So let's close with this question of free speech, because to me, this is the only possibility we have for a civilized future. And it sort of feels, I don't know if you did this as a kid, you know, the escalator's coming down and you start running up it to see how far up you can get or whether you can get to the top. Don't anyone come down with a lot of bags. And I sort of feel like with free speech, we keep making the same case in the West. We keep making the same arguments. We're trying to climb back up. But it feels like that escalator coming down is just getting faster and faster. And it feels sometimes, it's not an argument, just a feeling, but it feels a little bit like it's kind of inevitable that we're going to lose this capacity for free speech. But nonetheless, I can't conceive of any way of giving up the fight uh, before it completely collapses. Because if there's even a tiny sliver of a chance that we can maintain open communication with a wide variety of belief systems, it's worth hanging on to because the alternative is so horrendous. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, there's just no choice, in my opinion. Uh, free speech is the foundation of a democracy. It's the it's it's the the thing that has made the West great. The fact that we and the 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 thing with free speech is there there are so many dimensions to why it's important. It's not just a power dimension, as in you know, if if someone has the, the power to silence your speech, then it's going to be at some point that you lose the power to prevent them from silencing you. And so it's in your own interest to not silence other people so they won't silence you. It's not just that. It's There are, there are, there are deeper moral issues. It's like, okay, what gives you the right to silence someone? Why do you think that your opinions and your subjective view of the world is so much more important than theirs? No matter what they're saying, no matter who they are, you know, how arrogant. And again, it's just hubris to think that you are so perfect that you know that you can stop someone else from talking and be completely certain that that was the right decision. Mm -hmm. And yet you will see this with radicalized college students all the time with the most, and I, I mean, I don't want to call Ben Shapiro tepid or middle of the road or something you know because i'm not i'm not trying to undervalue his quality as a thinker but what i mean is he's not a radical he's not some insane person preaching hate and yet he gets it almost worse than anyone else it's it's incredible and but it's the arrogance of the idea that you have the right to shut someone down that is i, I is terrible and terrifying to me it's the it's the beginning of totalitarianism and that's where it starts i mean the well, first it's, it's only the worst arguments that want to shut other people down 
You know, oh, like absolutely. if if, if I'm getting into a ring with Mike Tyson, yeah, I want to blow dart to shoot into his neck because I'm not <laughs> yes. going to win that fight. You know, I'm going to take him down. And this to me comes down to this fundamental two syllables of reason, 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 reason. I feel like, you know, that the, the Braveheart, let me step back from the mic here, reason, like just, and instead of freedom, because to me, that is the same. We, we have to have a way of negotiating disputes that aren't based upon who could hook into political power or who can shame other people or who can ostracize and destroy their reputation and destroy their source of income. We have to have a way of negotiating our differences that is objective, that is independent of will and dominance. And like the scientific method, like mathematical reasoning uh, and so on, we need mm-hmm. this reason and evidence. If we let let that go. If we let go our common subjugation to empirical objective reality, we will end up in a civil war. I mean, to me, this is absolute because the left believes that they're perfectly moral and perfectly justified in using force. And the right doesn't want to use force, but eventually is going to get cornered. Uh, and, and we've seen this happen over and over again in history. We have to subjugate this like weird, angry, infantile will for dominance to the strictures of reason and evidence. If we can do that, we can all play together. And if we can't, we will surely wage war with each other. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, as, as soon as uh, as soon as argumentation is taken off the table as a way of actually resolving disputes, then the only other resolving method is force. And I tell you what, if you think you have the power to win that fight, then you better. You better be the, the, the worst person around. You better be the strongest. You better be the toughest. And I tell you what, looking at the snowflakes on the left, you ain't. <laughs> so I'm telling you, you know, when it when it comes down to it, you better, A, no one's going to have any sympathy for you. And B, you're going to lose the fight that you're setting up by your own actions because of your own short-sightedness. So yeah, it, it has to be free speech. It has to be. All right. Well, I really, really appreciate your time today. Wanted to remind people, and we'll put the links to all of this below, Sargon of Akkad 2K, Sargon of Akkad 100 on YouTube, Facebook, the same, minds.com forward slash Sargon of Akkad under bars between. Uh, a great pleasure. I'm surprised it Thank took you. so long. We'll do this again soon, I hope. And uh, congratulations on getting your channel back. Uh, you know, when you reach for your scam, but there's no sword, it's good when you yeah, find it, yeah. uh, you know, three steps away. So I look forward to the work that you put out. Thanks so much for the conversation today. Well, thank you so much. And I just want to say this was, I have really had a great time with this conversation. I'd, be, I'd love to do it again. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, and let's hear uh, comments below. Uh, people have been asking for this for a while. So uh, let's hear the comments and, and get the great. feedback. But uh, it was a great chat. Thanks, man.